Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This week, I sit down with Matt LeMay, product coach and consultant. We talk about the four guiding principles of product management, living in your user's reality, and why it's better to change the rules, not break the rules. Enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love for you to start off by telling folks a little bit about your career path to date. Um, sure, I'd be happy to. My career path to date has been uh, non-linear, to say the least. <laughs> um, I uh, I studied modern culture and media in college, wrote my thesis about sex in the city. So I was doing the whole media studies thing, thinking I'd probably go into advertising. I started a band in college, which had some minor degree of indie rock success. So uh, I was actually a professional musician for a couple of years after I graduated, um, was writing about music at the same time, went into uh, arts administration, had a marketing job at a nonprofit, um, in part so that I could continue touring with my band, um, was developing websites, doing some good old fashioned LAMP, uh, <laughs> MySQL and uh, PHP development, mostly for arts organizations. Um, and then through kind of complete happenstance, I got introduced to the folks at Bitly and was able to, to make apparently a convincing case that a lot of the experience I had, both building websites and working as a musician and leading a band, would set me up well for some kind of product or product-like role at that company. So I started out in developer evangelism, moved into a product management role on the API and platform side. Um, and then wound up running consumer product for a little while. In parallel with that, I started teaching. I actually was reached out to by some folks at General Assembly back when it was just a co-working space because they were looking for people in the New York startup community to lead classes for other people in the New York startup community. And they said to me, hey, you're working on APIs. We should have a class about what APIs are. And I said, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. So in parallel with my product career, I, I had also started a uh, kind of informal training practice, which became more formal over the years. After Bitly, I consulted with various early stage startups for a little while while also doing my training work. Went to work at Songza, the music startup here in New York, which was a fantastic experience. Songza got acquired by Google. I spent a little time at Google. And then I met my current business partner, Trisha Wong, who has done a lot of amazing ethnographic research within large companies. And we started Constellate Data Together, an organization to help companies bring some of that human complexity and dimension back to their data, because so many quantitative data initiatives tend to strip things down to the most easily quantifiable dimensions. So we've been doing some work for Clorox and Procter & Gamble and Kickstarter. Um, interesting stuff happening over there. I've still been training a lot of product management folks at big companies and small companies. Um, I still work on music, occasionally mixing records. I still write about music. So I think that the short version of that very long answer I just gave is it's been, it's been an eclectic journey. Yes, indeed. It sounds like a fun one, a good mix. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, so let's talk about product management. Um, yes. first off, I want to hear your definition of product management, given that it's such a nebulous, I think, uh, you know, title these days and can be interpreted in a number of ways. So could you give me your definition of product management? How do you define it? Yeah, that is a great question and a great point because it is very nebulous and the role itself does vary a lot from organization to organization. 
To me, being a product manager is all about being the connective tissue, being the glue that connects whatever the different roles are within your organization. So the specific organizational roles might vary depending on where you are. You might be working more closely with technical people. You might be working more closely with marketing people. But whoever those different players are, your job as product manager is is kind of to be a liner in chief or a translator in chief, the person who is ultimately responsible and accountable for everybody having a shared language and a shared sense of purpose. Wow, that is good. That's a sync too. Thank you. <laughs> Uncharacteristically succinct for me. <laughs> um, so what have you learned about yourself through through that, that mix of careers that you talk about? Um, that's a great question. I've learned a lot of things about myself, some of which have been, uh, have been, been learned in, in somewhat difficult and, and stark situations. There's a lot of emotional labor that goes into product management. And because you're sitting at the middle of things, in a lot of cases, you have to learn how to be more calm and even keeled than one such as myself might be inclined to be. You know, I think that the most valuable and most difficult lessons I've learned have really been about learning when to suppress my own self-interest and my own ego for the sake of making sure that people are on the same page and know what they're doing. One of the traps that I think product managers fall into is because, per your point, it's sort of a nebulous role. Product managers feel the need to assert their own value to demonstrate how critical they are to the organization. But doing so is inherently counter to the kind of prime directive of the, the work, right? If you're trying to show how important you are, that you're not elevating the people on your team, you're not really scaling and making that knowledge that people need self-contained and easy to access. So the kind of bitter irony of my career as a product manager is that the moments when I felt like I have the most capital within an organization or I'm the most visible have often come before things have gone really sideways uh, for my team or for the organization at large. So one of the hardest things I've had to learn is just to see the value that I create through the work of my team and through things that are largely invisible and difficult to quantify. Mm, so calmness and humility. Yeah. Hmm. So those things. Yeah. So the, I'm not are not in my brutally <laughs> <those, laughs> honest come particularly easy for me. So it's been it's been good. It's been very good to wow. learn those things. Yeah. So what other things? What 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 attributes have you maybe picked up along the way um, beyond those that, that you think have contributed to your success? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I remember one of the first times I actually sat down with somebody who was a, a more experienced product manager than I am, who was kind of walking me through. This is when I was very new to the role and I hadn't encountered that many product managers. He was kind of walking me through what to expect from product management writ large. And he said, you know, a lot of your job is to think about everything that could go wrong and stop it from going wrong, which was an interesting thing for me to think about because that's what I do all the time. Anyhow, um, but figuring out what's actually actionable, what needs to be brought to light, what's a real danger and what's a, a far-fetched anxiety-ridden fever dream. Um, it has been an interesting thing for me because I'm, I'm an anxious person by nature. And I feel like a lot of product managers I've met are as well. Um, and, you know, some degree of anxiety is not a bad thing because you can potentially see things farther out ahead because you're thinking, what might happen if this happens? What might happen if that happens? But I, I think one of the big things I've learned in the last couple of years in particular is that too much of that anxiety can make things much harder to 
to actually execute against. So spending too much time in the sort of myriad what ifs and potential downsides and problems is very much a double edged sword and something which can work against the morale and the successful work of a team. So one thing I've learned a lot in the last year is really how to how to enlist people within and outside your organization as partners in problem solving rather than as problems to be solved, <laughs> um, which is difficult sometimes because there are situations where you find yourself at odds with somebody or your vision for the product is different from their vision. Um, and, and learning how to get past some of those feelings of being spoken over or, you know, marginalized or, you know, product managers generally don't have a lot of formal authority within organizations and managing the kind of psychological ramifications of that has been an interesting one. And I think it's made me a better person, more inclined to approach people in the spirit of shared problem solving and partnership as opposed to in an antagonistic way. Mm, that's interesting. Early on, you said talking about anxiety and it's this whole, well, uh, the way that I view it is, you know, anxiety versus anticipation and sort of mm. where do you find the balance? Um, I like that. You know, because the anxiety is, as you said, a lot of product managers are anxious by nature um, and it's it's a strength, but can be crippling too. Yes, yes. And finding that right that right amount of responsibility and burden to take on as a product manager is also a really big challenge that it took me years and years and years to get better at. My inclination has always been to take on as much as I can. If there's a problem, don't worry, I'll take care of it. If there's something that needs to be done, don't worry, I'll do it. You know, I was, I was the kid who did all the work on group projects when I had group projects in school, in part because I liked doing work and in part because I passive aggressively didn't trust the other people in the group to do the work up to my particular standard of schoolwork. I was a lot of fun. Um, but I think one thing, you know, one thing that you learn over time is that if you take on everything yourself, you're not actually letting your team grow. You're not letting your team experience those challenges. And you're, you're, in a sense, not trusting the people you work with to be full partners in navigating those challenges. Mm -hmm. So one big realization I've had, I think really only in the last year or so, is that that impulse I had to kind of become the, the product martyr and take everything on um, doesn't actually help that much and, and can actually isolate a product manager from their team and can make it harder for their team to learn and grow. So one of the big things I've been challenging myself on is when I feel the temptation to say, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of that. What is the thing that I'm actually, what is the anticipation there, right? Not not what's the anxiety for your point, but what's the actual thing that I have concern about being executed a certain way? And how do I level up to the actual goals of the project in a way that will let me share that transparently with the group? So I, you know, I want to make sure that we as a group are delivering on this because I know it's really important that we hit this goal or that we meet this user need rather than, oh, don't worry, I'll do it. Because I, you know, that impulse betrays some kind of communication failure, which is best addressed systemically as opposed to one person taking that on and then resenting everybody for it later. Mm, that's a really good point. Um, so you're writing this fantastic book. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I'm enjoying it thus far. Uh, product management and practice. And yes. you talk about these four core principles of product management. Can you talk yes. to those? I would love to. So the, the four guiding principles came out of 
uh, these four core skills, which is an acronym for communication, organization, research, and execution. I wrote a piece on Medium a few years ago, which was kind of my attempt to challenge the traditional three-way Venn diagram of product management with business, technology, and UX, because having worked at a lot of enterprises and companies where, you know, people might not actually be that close to the technology side or might not actually be thinking about user experience as a day-to-day concern, I felt like those three areas capture a common set of subject matter knowledge that product managers will encounter but not the actual skills they'll need to connect between those different subject matter areas. So I wrote this piece about communication, organization, and execution. And I, a lot of people commented, well, not a lot of people, some people commented and rightly pointed out that, that something seemed to be missing from it. And that thing seemed to be this element of research or the ability to actually glean information from the outside world. Erica Hall in the book, Just Enough Research, which is a great book, says that uh, research is just applied critical thinking, which I I love as a way of defining research. Mm. Um, And I like using the word research because it also makes it clear that it's not just about being smart. It's about actually doing the work of seeking out alternate perspectives and explanations and ideas. So these four skills, communication, organization, research, and execution, each one comes with a guiding principle. Um, And and I stand by these four guiding principles. I am happy to discuss them. Uh, for communication, the guiding principle is clarity over comfort, hmm. which is really kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier about this idea that there are times as a product manager when you will have to state things that might seem painfully obvious or ask questions which you know are wading into really difficult political challenges for the organization. But if there is not absolute clarity on your team and in your organization about what people are working on and why, then you cannot succeed as a product manager, full stop. If people don't know what they're doing and why they're doing it and know that really clearly, then it doesn't matter how good the thing is that you ship or how quickly you ship it. The team will eventually start to fragment, fall apart because that understanding is so fragile and so susceptible to miscommunication and to tomfoolery by people who are trying to steer the product direction one way or another. And in a lot of cases, that does mean incurring great discomfort. So that choice to ask the question that you're not sure if you should ask or to have the conversation that you know is going to be difficult to have, that's a real choice that product managers have to make every day and and arguably, I think, the most important choice. Um, So that's clarity over comfort. Mm -hmm. For organization, we have change the rules, don't break the rules. And this was another one that it took me a long time to understand. I mean, I come from music. I am not a process person. (laughs) And when I started as a product manager, I think a a lot of folks who start out as product managers are like, yeah, all this stuff is stupid. Like, we shouldn't have 800 steps to do everything. We'll just, like, work real fast. We'll move fast and break stuff, and it'll be awesome. But there's a, a downside to that, which is that when the rules don't work and people work around the rules, you're basically incentivizing rule breakers and people who are not communicating well. So the people who figured out how to game the system accomplish the most. And the people who are trying to go through the system are, you know, dinged for not shipping enough software or not being performant enough in whatever way. And that's a really bad thing to happen culturally. When the people who follow the rules are punished for it, um, it's, it, it does really bad things and it tends to reward people for the wrong things. So it's, it's a product manager's job to make sure that whatever rules and practices and process is in place is helping people achieve their goals, not hindering their ability to achieve their goals. And that means that 
you have to be really thoughtful about when you make an exception to the rules. I, I try to tell people, you know, especially when you're talking about something like prioritization, where you'll have a roadmap for the next sprint, and then some last minute request comes in, rather than putting everything on hold and saying, well, this is urgent, we have to do it. How do you actually build a process to accommodate last minute requests, even if it's just as simple as a template, which people have to go through in order to make that request? Just having some kind of formalized system so that people understand that the system is there to help them achieve their goals, not something that needs to be undermined. Because if they don't feel that way, they will work to undermine the system. And that is another thing which can be really, really bad for product teams. Mm. Um, and then for research, we have live in your user's reality, which is pretty straightforward, but also very difficult when you work in an organization you live in that organization's reality. <laughs> that is your day-to-day. -day. You believe the things that people in that organization believe. And it's shockingly easy to become fundamentally misaligned with the reality of your customer, especially when the metrics are telling you that you're doing an okay job, but your customers are actually not that engaged. So living in your customer's reality is about getting beyond just looking at isolated metrics, particularly vanity metrics, to understand your customers and really understanding their perspective, their worldview, how it's changing, how it's evolving, so that you can continue to meet their needs as they change and evolve, rather than getting stuck in the way that things have always been and the status quo of your organization. Hmm. Finally, for execution, um, this is one of my favorite ones, no work above, no work below. So this means that as a product manager, you have to do whatever it takes for your team to succeed. It's pretty well documented that there can be no work below you or beneath you as a product manager, right? So if you have to bring coffee and donuts to the team, that's what you do. If you have to learn how to do something that isn't super fun and exciting to you, that's what you do. Product managers who say, that's not my job or that's not something I like to do, do not generally succeed. Um, what nobody told me when I started that is that that would go the other way as well. There would be times when I would be asked to step up above my role for the sake of making a, an argument or, a, you know, making my case to senior leadership or in one case, even being fake promoted to senior leadership for a day so that I could carry out a negotiation with an important platform partner. Um, those moments have been some of the most incredibly tense and stressful in my career, where I'm making a case for something as the kind of voice of the user that goes contrary to what senior leaders want, and where I'm told in no uncertain terms that if I'm wrong about this, there's going to be uh, some consequences for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is part of what makes the role so interesting and so exciting is day to day you don't really know quite what's going to be asked of you. Um, and, and at times it will be things that feel very mundane and quotidian. And at times it will be things which feel like you are stepping up to, you know, to be the, the temporary kind of, I don't want to say savior because that's a, a, a dangerous word in this context, but you'll be the person who's asked to step in and, and be the representative of a point of view, which might not be getting as much consideration as you feel it deserves. Mm -hmm. So, in this role, that's one of the you know, one of the things that again makes suppressing that ego impulse so important. Because when your step has to step up, it doesn't mean that you're now a VP. It doesn't mean that you're now running the company. Um, it means that your perspective is valuable, which even if that does not correspond to formal organizational rewards, um, is a good sign that you're building that kind of trust that's so important to succeed in that role. 
Mm. So let me let me go back on one of your points. Um, live, Please. live in your user's reality. What does yes. that What does that look like? From a you know, I'm thinking, um, you know, in terms of looking at metrics, as you said, and saying, oh, we're doing an okay job, and and things are sort of um, moving along. Um, in 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 thinking through, like, how do you do that? Like, can you yep. give me an example of like what that looks like? So one thing I'm a firm believer in, I'm a firm believer in qualitative research generally, um, but within that set of qualitative research, I'm a firm believer in talking to people who are not your best customers. Um, I'm a firm believer in talking to people who are considered casual users or users who abandon your product. There's a tendency when companies do qualitative research to over-index on the power users and the good customers and to just keep building things for them. But when you talk about living in your user's reality, you know, you're really talking about living in multiple realities for multiple users. And in a lot of cases, the people who you're talking to need to be the people who you're most afraid to hear from or who you initially feel have the most tenuous and least passionate understanding of your product. Because those are often the people who are going to make or break your product success and who are going to be where your growth opportunities come from. So when I talk about living in, in your user's reality, a lot of that has to do with getting outside of this kind of closed feedback loop of looking for the vanity metrics that support that you're doing a good job and talking to the good customers who will tell you how much they love your product <laughs> and also have a million product ideas. Um, it's the people who don't really have any product ideas who are just like, yeah, I don't know, it's fine. Sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't. Those are the people whose perspective you really need to understand the most because their perspective is probably the farthest away from yours. And not taking those people seriously, not considering them, is a, a very dangerous thing that I've seen a lot of product organizations do and fall into. Mm, interesting. It's such a great point. You know, if you keep talking to your best customers, you're going to get the same feedback. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And also, it's funny because I've also, you know, I've worked with teams where they said, yeah, we interviewed our customers and they all said they love it. <laughs> and that's great, but it's not enough. Knowing, you know, people, people just psychologically want to say yes and want to make people happy. There's a ton of research that's been done mm. on various, you know, biases by which people will say yes when they're asked a question. You know, there's something I was reading that basically if you if you design a survey as a yes, no question versus as a multiple choice question, you're going to get 10 to 15 points more upside just by the way that you're asking the question, which is fascinating. Mm. Um but getting people to a place where you're leaving space for them to express their worldview and their reality, you're getting a little bit beyond just asking questions about your product. You're doing discovery level work as well as optimization level work. It's funny, I was at a training with a, a financial services company a few weeks ago that we were walking through doing some qualitative research and people were getting very tense. Well, I, I, I'm talking to somebody, but they went totally off into left field and they're not talking about my product anymore. They're talking about their life. Um, and I get that concern, right? Because you're there to do a job, but you know, there's, there's an element and this feels sort of esoteric, but I think it's true. There's an element of faith that goes into those kinds of conversations where if you really trust and follow somebody's own line of thinking, there will be value in it. If you trust that there will be value in it. Um, but if you go in trying to steer a conversation back to your assumptions or the things that you want to be true, that is exactly where the conversation will go. So learning how to really conduct that kind of open-ended research 
Um, I'm excruciatingly grateful to have a business partnership with an ethnographer because I've learned how to do that kind of research, which did not come easy for me. There's a lot of work that goes into cultivating that kind of mindset, approaching things that way. Mm, it's fascinating, really. It's such a such a discipline, like you have to have such a disciplined approach to keeping it open. That's the... the yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly I think I think you totally nailed the paradox of that kind of work, right, which is that people think that qualitative research is just talking to people. Um, but there's so much discipline and practice that goes into being able to talk to people in a way which is going to open them up to express their own concerns and their own point of view and to get past, especially when you're doing user research about a specific product, get past those transactional conversations, break yourself out of the habit of asking people for solutions. You know, there's a lot of great writing about this out there by research folks, but it, it, it it's real and it takes a lot of work. Mm. So what advice do you have for someone who wants to break into product management today? Um, that's a great question. And that's something I get asked a lot. Um, you know, I think that given the lack of a clear definition around product management, there is a misconception among some folks that it's this thing where you get to go into a company and have cool ideas every day and be Steve Jobs and <laughs> point at people and yell at people and say, ship it. And everybody thinks that you're super smart. Um, you know, I've had a lot of folks come to me and say, I'm not technical, but I want to work at a tech company, so I'm going to be a product manager. And, and there is an element of that which makes sense to me, which is that I, I do not, in fact, believe that you need to be a technical person to be a product manager, even at a technology company. However, it's a lot of work to be a product manager. It's difficult work, and it's not really that kind of visionary work. So the, the first advice I'd give to somebody who wants to break into product management is that if, if you have this fantasy of being kind of a solo entrepreneur, of being the Steve Jobs of an organization, you are probably going to be very disappointed by the day-to-day -day work of product management. You are not going to get that kind of affirmation that you desire. And you should talk to a lot of working product managers, not saying, how do I get a job like yours? Not saying, can you get me a job? Just saying, what does your day-to-day -day work look like? Actually take the time to learn and do that research Personally, when people approach me that way, I'm more inclined to help them because they're demonstrating right out of the gate that they are inclined towards a research mindset and are going to start a conversation by asking questions rather than by asking favors. Beyond that, once you get into an organization, you know, to, to be blunt, companies are very bad at hiring product managers. There are so many horror stories out there. A woman named Megan Kierstead wrote a great piece on Medium about doing an, uh, an interview where somebody asked her, if you were trying to beat Uber, what technology stack would you use? And she gave what I consider to be absolutely the correct answer, which is it's not about technology stack. It's about understanding user needs. And that was not considered the correct answer, which is a, a real shame. But that that tendency to not understand why you need a product manager and then wind up over-indexing on the things which feel either familiar to an organization because you already have people who do those roles or easy to quantify, easier to quantify than connective skills such as, you know, can they whiteboard an algorithm? Can they talk about JavaScript with the engineers? Those are the things that people wind up being hired for and, and those don't map very well to the work that people will actually be doing. So. As a result, when people go in to apply for product management roles, I think a lot of work needs to be done on the part of the candidate to really explain why and how they can help and to understand one specific problem the organization has which they can help with. Um, companies are, are, again, given that ambiguity around the role, generally pretty 
conservative about who they will hire for product management roles. They're looking for people who have a traditional, quote unquote, product management background, who either have worked as product managers before or who have, you know, a computer science degree or an MBA, who match the profile for a Google product manager or an Amazon product manager. So if you're out there, you don't fit that profile and you're trying to show a company that you can help them get better at solving problems by making connections, find a single problem you can help solve and offer to solve it as a contractor for a little while. That's a very specific tactical suggestion, but every product management job I've had started out with me going to a company and saying, oh, you could really use help prioritizing, for example. You're, you need to figure out how to have a better pipeline for prioritizing product work. I can spend three months helping you get better at prioritization. And then if it's a good fit, I'll join the company. Or you really need help building out a dashboard for making decisions. You know, people don't know what metrics they're indexing on. They don't know what they're looking for. Why don't I help you build this out? And then we'll see if it's a fit for the team. I, I recommend that to folks in, in part because if it's a bad fit, that's not necessarily your fault either. And you don't want to get stuck as a product manager at a company where you're not working well with people. So I found that maybe the best way to assuage the inherent organizational anxiety around hiring people for a role that's difficult to define is just to find a very distinct and discrete problem to solve, um, make a case for why you're the right person to solve it, and give that organization an out so it doesn't feel like you're trying to sneak your way in and then not do anything, which I think somewhat unreasonably is the way that a lot of companies tend to approach candidates for product management roles. Mm, why? You know, it's interesting. With companies hiring product managers and not really knowing what they're hiring, what are they hiring for? Like, what is the pain point or what is the problem that they're hiring <laughs> for? Or That's do they even question. know? I mean, do they? Is it? I think in a lot of cases, they don't know. I think in a lot of cases, there's a misconception that we need our product team to work faster. We need the engineers to deliver more output. So we're going to bring on a product manager. Um, a product manager is not necessarily going to do that. In fact, when I've been brought on as a product manager, I've usually slowed down the actual output pace of code being written because I'm taking a step back and saying we need to reprioritize. We need to do user research. We need to make sure that we're actually understanding both our users' needs and our business goals so that we can align the two. In a lot of cases, there's this sense that, and, and this goes to a lot of the language around agile software development too, there's this misconception that it's all about doing more stuff faster. Uh, and it's really not. It's about doing the right things and doing things that will create value. So I think in a lot of cases, companies are looking for somebody who they see as being kind of a an accelerant for the existing practices of their engineers and designers when in fact, what they're going to do is make sure that things that those people are working on are the right things. And I think another misconception is that, you know, you can't do that without shaking things up a little bit. If a product manager is being brought on to communicate, to relentlessly seek out clarity on organizational goals, that's, you know, disruptive in the true sense of the word, not in the kind of kitschy startup-y sense of the word, that will actually disrupt the way people work. And that's good because you need that kind of clarity and a lot of organizations simply don't have it. So I think, you know, it's, it's really critical that organizations, first of all, understand why they need product managers in the first place. If you just want more speed, then maybe don't hire a product manager, maybe hire another engineer, another designer. If you, you know, if you just want 
somebody who's going to make sure people hit the deadlines, maybe hire a project manager or hire somebody who's not as inclined to really get into the nuts and bolts of things and really try to rewire the way the organization communicates with each other. But if what you're looking for is somebody who's going to make sure that everybody is speaking the same language, that people know what they're working on and why, that they're able to converse and to have those conversations to, you know, do that prioritization to do that difficult, contentious stuff in a way that doesn't, you know, totally derail <laughs> the company's work, then product managers are great to hire. But it's it's really hard to think through who's the right person to do that kind of work. What's the right profile for that person? And, and how do I find them? Mm, so true. So so what companies and the answer can be none. <laughs> what companies are succeeding, do you think, in your mind with product management and why? That's such a good question. And, and I wish I had a better... <laughs> answer to it. Um, I will say that um, one company that's been really interesting to look at in terms of the way they handle a lot of their internal practices and processes around product is Spotify. Um, they have an entire operations team whose job is to learn about what's going on, how people are working, suggest improvements and changes to process, and then communicate about what the intended effect of those changes were and what the actual effects of those changes were. So they'll send out an email that says, you know, we suggested that people do this. We thought that it would have this effect, but it's actually having this effect. So now we're recommending that you take this step instead. So really taking that idea of transparency and making that core to the organization's, you know, entire ethos. So if there's a, a recommended change, there's always a clear why around it. And it's always clear what the intended effect is and how it's being measured. Um, just as a, as a way to create a good product management culture, that seems so smart and so forward thinking. Um, I, I'm really impressed by that from them. You know, it's, it's, it's tough talking about some of the, the kind of big, big players in this, but when I do trainings, the first questions are, you know, how does Google do it? How does Amazon do it? How does Apple do it? And how can we do it the exact same way? And those are, are not necessarily the right questions. You know, I think the hyper focus on best practices encourages people to be uncurious, <laughs> right? If you're just asking, how does this other company do it? Great, we'll do the same thing. Well, there's a reason that the company does things that way. And it doesn't always work. You know, at any big company, I think if you talk to folks who work there, they'll say that, you know, which team you're on, who your manager is, how individual relationships are playing out is almost much more important than, you know, whatever quote unquote, best practices are being published out there. So one of the things that I, I tell people is that, you know, in any organization, there are going to be challenges. In a lot of cases, those challenges are going to be unique, not just to the organization, but to the team and to the people you're working with. So just get to know the people. You know, I my sort of informal metric for applying to companies has always been when I walk into the office, do I feel like I want to show up there again the next day? <laughs> Um, it's, you know, it's not very scientific, but it's a, it's a sort of strong and undeniable signal, right? You can tell pretty clearly when you walk into an office as a new person, whether people are, are, are friendly and curious and excited or whether they're like, wait, who is this person? What's going on? Something's changing. I hate it. Um, those things are really important. And, and that to me has less to do with the organization itself and more to do with the culture of that particular team or the people you're working with. Mm, this culture is such a big part, for sure. It's such a big part, and it's so hard. You know, again, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to measure. 
as a result, I think it gets undervalued as a part of this conversation about product management. And the conversation winds up falling into a lot of conversations about product development frameworks and tools and methodologies, which are an important part of this role, but far and away not the most important part. Mm, for sure. So so one final question. Uh, what people or projects are interesting to you these days? What's grabbing your attention? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, it's 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 hard for me to answer that because I feel like I've been so much off in my own <laughs> little world doing work on this book and on other things. Um, I'm really interested in, in you know, I, I do a lot of work around music and the way that the ecosystem around music products is evolving is super fascinating to me. Um, you know, there's been a huge change in how people consume music. There's been a huge change in how people create music. And um there's been this whole ecosystem evolving in the music space of, of small shops building super specialized software for music engineers, like building audio effect plugins, which, you know, have an addressable market of maybe a few thousand people. But it's a it's a really devoted market. And, and, and it's been fascinating to watch that because I've always wondered you know, what the next step is in terms of moving away from this relentless focus on scale and on, you know, quote unquote, having the next Facebook towards more of a kind of digital small business model. Um, hmm. So, and, and I've had some interesting conversations with uh, Maciej Chaglowski, who uh, is the founder of, of Pinboard and has written a bunch of super, super, super brilliant stuff. It's kind of one of my, one of my thinky heroes. Um, he gave an amazing keynote at Strata last year or two years ago, which ended with him saying, in conclusion, don't use data. And if you have to use it, don't collect it. Enjoy your big data conference. Uh, <laughs> total mic drop moment. Um, but, you know, when when Pinboard launched, his, his whole thing was like, look, I'm going to start this thing, which is going to build the best possible product for a smallish group of people. And I don't have to take venture backing and I don't have to be beholden to anybody. And this is going to be my life and it's going to be awesome. And it's funny because I feel like the places where that idea is playing out are in specialty and niche markets. You're not seeing them get written about on TechCrunch or on, you know, VentureBeat or whatever. But in within small communities of interest, this notion of the digital small business as opposed to the startup is taking off in a really, really, really cool way. And I'm just trying to pay attention to that and see what I can learn from this notion of rather than focusing on raising a billion dollars and, you know, having a billion users, um, what it means to, you know, leverage this, the fact that you can build stuff cheaper and faster than ever before to create more specialization rather than more sort of mass marketization. Mm. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. That's awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Thank this you. has been fun. A pleasure speaking with you as always. Thank you for listening. You can reach Matt on Twitter at Matt LeMay. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. And be sure to leave a review while you're there. <laughs>